It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you could also listen on the Radio Player Canada app if you download the app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. Just follow the directions and you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome my two guests to the show today. I have with me in the studio, Vanessa Gray and Nilu Gukar. And uh, they are uh, with the uh, the supporters that are supporting the Wet'suwet'en uh, people in uh, British Columbia. And uh, they are part of the uh, uh, the Rising Tide. Is, is that correct, that you guys yes. are part of the Rising yes, Tide? Yes, certainly. Nilo, I'm not. I'm not uh, certain about uh, about this, but uh, Vanessa is part of the uh, Porcupine Warriors. Uh, are you too part of that uh, organization? No, I'm just part of Rising Tide Toronto. Okay, so now a little bit about Rising Tide, which is uh, it started, I believe, in about 2000, uh, having to do with uh, environmental issues and social justice activ- activists and things that had to do with. Uh, uh, around the world, they set up places in North and South America, the United Kingdom, Ecuador, and Australia, and of course they expanded to North America. And I think 2006, uh, with uh, with uh, various uh, chapters that have now uh, are now spanning across North America and Canada and the United States. Um, and of course, you are with the Toronto area, and you guys are supporting the Wet'suwet'en. Uh, and of course, so we heard about a couple of things that happened just recently. Uh, of course, with uh, the ruling that came down that said that uh, the government could proceed with their uh, pipeline, uh, that sparked, of course, uh, recent uh, action by the RCMP, uh, which we heard about yesterday, that resulted in some arrests that took place. But that isn't the only thing that happened. We also heard about a couple of things in uh, in on- here in Ontario where they, uh, uh, people uh, from uh, Tyendinaga area blocked uh, the, the, um, the rail lines. They're still uh, blocking it right and they're now. they're still blocking it. So that's great. Thank you for that update. Um, so we did hear about those things. And uh, so why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, yourselves? How, how and why did you get involved with this organization? Okay. Uh, Rising Tide Toronto started in 2012. Okay. And I think a few years later, I got involved for the same purpose that the group kind of like started, which is Indigenous Solidarity and Environmental Movement. And uh, during that time, I think uh, the group was organizing mostly around Line 9, which is another pipeline uh, that was going through Toronto, Sarnia, and uh, many other places. And now we are focusing on Wet'suwet'en, Amjanong, and other groups. Okay. Anything you'd like to add to that, Vanessa? Um, I am an indigenous um, person in solidarity with uh, the Wet'suwet'en. And so I'm in direct contact with people who are currently being attacked by the RCMP. Um, These are friends. uh, These are uh, people I highly respect and that are just like showing us the way of 
what it means to be strong and indigenous on your land because even when Justin Trudeau stands behind um, the the province of uh, British Columbia um, who is enforcing the RCMP um, for a pipeline, it's completely unnecessary and it's extremely expensive. I can just imagine um, the amounts of resources going into taking people off their own land is it's extremely hard for me to see because every single time this has happened across Turtle Island, it was probably just as um, terrifying each time. And it's happened again and again. And this is why we are seeing ourselves in a climate crisis right now. This is why, because you separate Indigenous people from their land and we are just our traditions. Our bloodlines are connected to our ancestors who had held down that land for generations before Canada was even a thing. Yeah, so, and I also understand that, uh, that you, and I don't, I don't know if people really understand this, it's not just, it's not just the land that we're hearing about, uh, or that is what we're hearing about in this pipeline going through, but people are living on that land. There's still people living there. Yes. We, don't, we haven't heard there too much about that. There are families there, yes. And so now what is your sense about what you've heard from from the the situation involving the the elected councils and the hereditary chiefs because it seems we we haven't heard much about that part of this because there is that the, the Actually there are, is that part though the in the Dalgamuth case that was proven to be hereditary chiefs land and mm-hmm. they don't have the consent from those hereditary chiefs so they don't even have like any right of way on unceded territory right so that's what i'm saying we haven't heard about that in this particular incident we haven't heard uh about we haven't heard from the elected council for instance i at least i'm not aware of any statement made there's by the there's still elected people council. living there they don't right. have to attack them with guns before like you talk to like the elected council underneath like the indian act Right, but this is what I'm trying to. Uh, this is what I'm trying to to get to the bottom of. Wh- what is your sense about what the relationship is? Is has it broken down between the elected council and the hereditary chiefs? Do you know? I just am more concerned about the relationship between Canadians and Indigenous people right now. It's not about like inner conflict. It's about the conflict that people have because they're not stopping this because it doesn't have to carry on for one more minute. It could stop. Like I said, those are resources going into taking people off the land, unceded territory. And I understand that. What I'm what I'm trying to get to is that they have a range, They have uh, they have these agreements with the elected councils, and that sound it sounds like what you're saying is that they did not have the right to do that. And that's why I'm trying to figure out what's going on. There is never any right in like basically any like industrial like facility placed on any like indigenous land anything in the chemical valley where i'm from in sarnia ontario nothing was legitimate nothing's legitimate about taking land away from indigenous people and even putting us on a reserve that is not legitimate that is colonialism and that is violent genocide okay and i think more and more people are becoming aware of that so so 
I guess the the question is at this point with the situation in out in BC right now, with which is what this is focused on. What what for instance uh, are you aware of then from the hereditary side uh, of the chiefs? Uh, are they looking for uh, are they looking for for anything less than this pipeline not going through their lands? Is that what they're basically uh, basically saying at this point in time? Um, from what my understanding is that hereditary chiefs don't want this pipeline on the land, but what we are seeing is that the uh, mainstream media is using band council's deal with the CGL to say, oh, we got the agreement with, from the band councils, and uh, but hereditary chiefs are opposing. So mm-hmm. they try to show that there is two sides. But what uh, Vanessa and many of us believe is that band councils, in this case, in we are talking about with Sweden and mm-hmm. Western, when there mm-hmm. were never a deal on land. There were no treaties signed. There were no bill. So there's different sides of Canada have different kind of like uh, agreements with the government and stuff, which is we can discuss it later. But in this specific uh, situation, band councils comes from Indian Act, which is a colonial base, which is that where, where they grounded uh, kind of like residential schools when uh, many uh, like bounding the indigenous communities to the reserves happen. So band councils come from that legacy. Right. And in this case, where the Swetans have never signed a treaty, the rights go to hereditary chiefs. And that's where we our support uh, right. lie down. And I think that's where the, uh, the narrative comes from. Right. So the hereditary uh, chiefs, uh, and and the elected council, uh, many elected councils are viewed as an administrative arm of of like you said the the, the government, yes. the hereditary side, which uh, I believe in in many communities have that have that agreement within themselves to say, for instance, on Six Nations, I believe that association is that the the clan system that the 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 hereditary uh, uh, chiefs have the have control over land culture. And those things, and and that's what they've sort of agreed on. Because as we know, uh, elected councils in many areas were forcibly put in and removed the, the traditional councils, uh, and a lot of people don't understand that, which is which is why I'm trying to get to this so that people understand the the situation that that created this this yes. paradox that we find uh, happening out there, mm-hmm. and why the hereditary chiefs are are being adamant about their statements and why they're, they're raising this. It's not just to be obnoxious. It's not just to say, you know, uh, we're doing this for the sake of doing it. It's to say there are, we, there are rights being stepped on here. Totally, and that's their traditional ro- uh, role that uh, save the land uh, and, like, protect the land because the, then that's what feeds the communities and the people get their power, their culture, their being from the land. Mm. And that's why they're strong on this case. Uh, Vanessa, you mentioned uh, that you're from the, uh, from the Sarni area and the, um, the First Nation. Uh, and Amajungwan, is, is how, how do you say your, your, your name, your, your community name? I'm from the Amjanong First Nation. Amjanong, thank you. And there is uh i remember seeing a, a something on on the community and and how uh, as you're sent you were mentioning the chemical valley and how that that community was directly impacted by the results of these so you you have a first hand uh, ex- you know 
existence and an understanding of, of the results of what could happen when things go wrong and when, uh, when there, are th there is this mixture of, of infrastructure such as uh, pipelines and, and these kind of things that go through First Nation communities, especially directing uh, and so close to your community. Um, can you share anything about that? Can you share with people a little bit about what, what your community has dealt with? What I see today in Wet'suwet'en is basically a cycle that started in my territory where they had first struck oil in the ground and they built the first pipeline and my grandpa went to the first residential school in Canada. And so we come from a very, like, as Anishinaabe people, we come from uh, like the lakes. We come from um, a way of living with our seasons, and we come from our own clans. And I'm part of the Bear Clan, and um, that's also the um, Get 'em Done um, Clan is uh, like bear as well and so there are connections and I think it's my lack of connection to um what's available in like land that isn't that doesn't have pipelines that doesn't have um the colonial like force like always like lingering and waiting to like waiting to react violently like that wasn't there in what Suetin before um last year and I have visited their territory many times now and there's so much disconnect that I have because of industry and we have seen it before in Amjanong where they take the land illegitimately and they build on to their structures and they just get old and the aging infrastructure and the accumulative effects are like a main concern but it's because this happened in the first place that we're dealing with something like a chemical valley where cancer levels are high in my community but it's nothing like that in in their territory in Wet'suwet'en territory where you can just drink from um from the river and uh, there's moose there and um, and there's traditional like teachings and there's war paths and there's like every sense and connection to their ancestors that once lived there before. And I'm trying to find out what that means in the chemical valley and just understanding chemicals and how they're impacting us every day. And uh, and of course, as you say, that's what uh, they they want to preserve. They want to make sure that that is not impacted any further than it already has been, so that their way of life and uh, their traditional lives can continue. Um, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth, and I have uh, two people with me in the studio, and they are Vanessa Gray and Nilu Gulak Gul Gulka. Pardon me, Gulka. And uh, they are with uh, Rising Tide, the Toronto chapter of that organization. 
and we're here talking about uh, the situation in Wet'suwet'en. They are supporters of that and what's happening out there. I know uh, you guys had a, you did you did something uh, in Etobicoke uh, just recently in support of that, and uh, I believe there's something else going to be happening over the weekend, if I'm not mistaken. You're trying to organize uh, some 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 other events that are going to be taking place. Is that correct? Yes, uh, there are so many actions have been organized and uh, in the past few weeks. And currently there are 50 plus actions being organized all around uh, different cities, different places. Uh, in Toronto, also yesterday was actions. And like today there was a call for uh, a rally in Queen's Park. And tomorrow also another action. So I... Uh, really encourage people to join these actions. Mm. Vanessa, you're, you're in touch with people out uh, in, in, in wet sweat and, and getting a, a firsthand uh, sort of information that comes to you from, from your connections out there. Uh, do we know what's happening to the people that have been arrested yesterday? Have they been released? Are they still in custody? Do we know what's going on? They've been released. Okay. With no charges to my knowledge. Right. There are other things, as you mentioned, that are going to be going to be happening uh, in support of this as it moves forward. Are you guys finding that more people are coming on board and getting behind this? Yeah, totally. Um, like, for example, the last week action in Etobicoke mm. was uh, in front of RCMP mm-hmm. office because now we see RCMP is like harassing journalists. Don't let them to be on the ground and mm. like film and take photograph of what's going on, which is like totally undermining Charter of Rights and Freedom and UN Declaration. So all these like violence is happening on the land, which is also illegal based on Canadian laws, uh, although uh, Canada don't have jurisdiction on Wet'suwet'en, but even based on their own law, this is kind of like not right to do. So we went to uh, kind of like to that office and uh, around 200 people Although it's like out of the town, it's mm. like in the middle of kind of like not very accessible. And we saw like a strong presence. Artists came, supported, and like so many speakers from different groups uh, were like messages. And they came and they spoke at that event. And they were like, "This is. We are very happy that this is happening." They were like, they were like talking about the different kind of like uh, injustices that was happening uh, to indigenous communities in the hands of police and RCMP. We have the case that now one third of the prisoners in Canada are indigenous, which is very disproportional. And there are reasons why it's happening. Prejudices and uh, so many uh, discriminatory kind of like practices. And those are coming uh, into light through these actions and uh, the resistance the communities take. And uh, I think it's, it's expanding. Mm. Um, what, what, do you, uh, what do you hope to accomplish with, with the demonstrations that you guys are putting forward and, and hope that that will result, um, and of course peacefully, uh, as, as this moves forward? Uh, the RCMP have to stand down. The pipeline company 
cannot be on the territory without the consent of the hereditary hereditary chiefs. We want all the demands of the Wet'suwet'en met, like every single one of them met. Um, they have a website. Uh, Unistone Camp uh, is uh, reporting on what's happening right now. Um, and we we want people to be safe. And we know that they the people, the traditional people of that land, of that territory, have every right to be on their land. And they're winning. They're, they're there. They're there right now. They're there with their sacred fire. They're there with their drums. They are, with every right, celebrating with their families on their own territory. And the fact that the RCMP are being enforced to move in with um, uh, military force um is extremely troubling to me that this is happening like right now and it doesn't happen it doesn't have to happen right now um Vanessa one of the things that you uh you said uh, in the presentation you made uh the other day uh, at the RCMP headquarters in Etobicoke was you talked about choice and no choice you you talked about that those people have no choice there you said you have a, you have a choice, and you guys chose to be there to do this. Can you elaborate on that in terms of of of, of what what makes that so important? It's Why that choice is not a choice, I guess you know. Because the federal government and the provincial government are enforcing the RCMP on Wet'suwet'en people right now. There are people with families out there, and they don't have to be in that situation. And like. Just because uh, your average Canadian isn't being targeted by the RCMP doesn't mean they shouldn't go out of their way to make sure that those Indigenous people are safe from the RCMP. Um, do you know, uh, you talked about the people that live there and the people that are living on that land. Are those people uh, being restricted from getting to their homes or getting to any of their own uh, areas where they where they live at this point, do you know, because of what's happening? Well, they're tearing down. They have already torn down the structures and get them done where they were living. And so they rebuilt and now they're under attack again. But uh, are, th- are these the, the demonstrators you're talking about? They're not people? demonstrators. They're people. They're what's you would in hereditary like people there. Uh, understood. Um, but I guess what I'm talking about is is. I'm just trying to to establish a, a difference between uh, long-term uh, home homes that have that are there and and what's been set up in regard to what's happening. There's no difference between living on your own land in a home rather than like a Canadian property. Like these people are just hunting and cooking and like supporting like people who come far and wide to like go there and help them like they are living on their land and their structures have been torn down by the RCMP already a year ago and they're under attack right now. But also their daily life have been disrupted because like the RCMP kind of like stop people, check, they would follow them, that people couldn't do hunting, Mm. they couldn't do the Mm. daily kind of like subsistence activities in the past uh, year since the uh, original invasion in last year happened. So, but then that that's the point, that when uh, hereditary chief went and um, 
expelled uh, uh, CGL workers from the area, then they could go back to their, those practices. Those in that uh, small window that happened again, people could go moose hunting, do different activities that they regularly do on the territories, and was disrupted all this long. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. That's what I was I was trying to to somewhat get at, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm trying to get, give people a sense of uh, our listeners what what exactly that this isn't just a temporary thing that's been set up to to just get in the way of what's happening. That it's the other way around completely. It's the it's the the people that live there that are being interrupted. It's it's the people whose land, as you pointed out, have every right to be wherever they want on their land, rightfully so, without interruption, without having to be restricted or or removed by the RCMP or or followed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'm just trying to give people a, a broader sense of what you know the picture we're not seeing that is unfolding there. So uh, um, now, do you think that there is a, 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 a more people? that are environmentally aware these days now also getting involved because of the climate crisis we face? Um, that's my answer is yes and no. Okay. Because like environmental movement needs to centralize indigenous uh, resistance in order to do it in a right way. You know, we can shift toward green energy, but like keep the same forces of operation and eventually continue destroying the land because it's not just like how we use the energy, it's like how we use the land. Many of the land is becoming destroyed, the green space totally being uh, destructed and like people are becoming more and more into this running through this profit gaining more and more kind of like type of lifestyle that is not sustainable. So Yes, shifting to green energy is just one point of so many. But like I'm saying that we need to centralize indigenous resistance because it's like changing the way of life. It's changing the way that society and system is working if you centralize kind of like that sort of resistance. Because why uh, like all like uh, if we want to go to the root of the problem is like at, at the end of the day, it's capitalist colonial system that uh, excluded people from the land and then have waged the war on indigenous communities constantly because they were not following the kind of like capitalist mode of like production. If like the land become polluted and then the community cannot rely on the land, they have no way to become assimilated in the cities. So we we see that these are all connected to each other, and like and then we have some now environmentalists who are like straightforward fascists, and they say, "Oh, one of the issues that we are seeing is overpopulation. So let those people die uh, in other countries because of the heat waves and like all all the natural disasters that are happening because of the global warming, and then this then we have less people, and then." That's the solution. So we see that uh, being just environmentalist is not uh, is not the answer. We need to be a right kind of like form of environmentalist who thinks about systemic forms of discrimination and uh, kind of like uh, that ends to extraction of the energy resources, how people live, 
uh, and like uh, and that's mm. how I see it. Okay. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, guys, unfortunately, because our time has run out. However, uh, it's been a pleasure having you both here. And uh, my guests have been in the studio today, uh, Nilu Gultar and uh, Vanessa Gray. Uh, Vanessa Gray is a part of the Porcupine Warriors and uh, is from the Anjaman First Nation. And uh, also, uh, she um, uh, is they are both part of the Rising Tide Toronto chapter of that organization, which is now... Um, right across uh, North America and in other parts of the world. And they are supporting the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in their, uh, in their attempt to get that pipeline stopped in British Columbia. It's been a pleasure having them both here. And I say Anyawa and Chimigwech to both of you for coming in. Don't go away. We'll be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. Catherine McKenney is a Somerset Ward councillor in Ottawa. She recently brought forward a motion to declare a homelessness emergency in Ottawa that got unanimous support from council. Homelessness and affordability have long dominated the conversation in the nation's capital, with over 8,000 people signing a petition in support of the motion. Caroline O'Neill, our morning news reporter in Ottawa, spoke with Councillor McKinney about what needs to happen now. Let's listen. I felt that uh, because we'd been calling this a crisis for so many years um, and really nothing was changing, if anything, things were getting worse, uh, that it was time to put uh, real language to it, much stronger language, and to call it what it is. It's an emergency, the same way that uh, if you have homes at risk of flooding, uh, we call that an emergency. If If we experience a tornado and people's homes are destroyed and we have to rebuild them, that's an emergency. Um, I think my my council colleague put it best, uh, Councillor Leeper, when he said that when lives are at risk, we call it an emergency, and this is an emergency. For people who are kind of familiar with the importance of language at City Hall and on a municipal council, why is it important to have that language there? What does that like allow you to do as a council? You know what? In the end, it doesn't give us any more uh, legal authority. It doesn't do anything like that. What it does is it raises the awareness of what we're trying to do. Um, it, uh, you know, the the campaign itself um, uh, raised uh, awareness. We got 8,000 people signing a uh, petition. We had organizations and businesses across the city uh, joining in uh, the call to end homelessness. So uh, it, pro- it provided us the opportunity to talk about it in a, a very uh, concrete way uh, and also to uh, bring to uh, the uh, the consciousness that uh, you know people are dying out there, people die of homelessness, um, and uh, we can't allow that. As someone who is out in the community so much, what were the things that you were seeing that made you realize or kind of see for yourself that this is a really a really prevalent issue in Ottawa? Yeah. Well, it's been happening for a long time, uh, and that's part of the problem. It's uh, it's one of those uh, crises that started a long time ago slowly uh, evolved into what we have today um, and that's why I think it's it's easy to forget that it's happening it's easy to normalize uh, people sleeping outside in our city but I remember last winter I met uh, a man who was experiencing homelessness here at City Hall he was sitting out in the front step and I said to him, you know, where did you sleep last night? And he told me that he'd slept in Confederation Park. And it was bitterly cold. 
And I said, you know, why do you sleep there? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I'm trying to stay clean. I'm afraid of the shelter. I, I, you know, I've been threatened. And while the shelters in this city provide, um, um, you know, provide people with a roof over their heads when there there is nothing else, and provide a service that is absolutely required for many people, it's uh, it's just not suitable, and they won't go. So I asked him, "How many people sleep outside? Can you tell me?" And he told me at the time that there were fifty. Wow! And he showed me where they were, where they slept at night. And it was very specific. And they could only sleep in certain parks without being harassed. Um, they could only sleep on certain grates without being harassed. They could only fall asleep after 11 p.m. without a tent, only a blanket, without being harassed. And they had to be up before sunrise. In other words, nobody could see them. Nobody knows that they're there. They, we, we were keeping them invisible. Over the course of the summer, we had, you know, the fire at the rooming house on La Breton Street, people ending up in tents. Um, another woman who was out front, uh, had been homeless for five years, rode the train and the bus all night just to stay warm. So, you know, as you're out there, as you're looking, as you're really opening your eyes to see what's happening, it is terrifying to see what are, what's happening to people in our community simply because they're poor. One of the things that you mentioned that I think really hits home to this is how systemic it all is, right? Like you said that it mm -hmm. snuck up on us because so much of it is rooted in the systems. And I noticed you, on your social media, you've been looking at some of those things, things like rent and income. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of break all of that down and how do those different issues play into this crisis? In the end, um, everyone who is homeless or at risk of homelessness in this city lives in poverty. Um, it's easy to say, you know, these are people who use drugs, these are people who deal drugs, these are people with mental illness, but there are people all over the city who use drugs, who have addictions, who suffer from some form of mental illness, and they're housed. And the difference between the two groups is that the people in our shelters who are outside, who are at risk of homelessness, who are living in rooming houses that are full of bed bugs and cockroaches, is that they're poor. So it is an issue of poverty. Um, and, you know, in the end, giving people a home will lift them out of homelessness. Nothing else. Not building bigger shelters. Not, you know putting conditions on their housing, but giving them a home and supports if they need it to keep that home. So, you know, when you look at, when you look at who's homeless and who's at risk of homeless, it is certainly, you know, if you look, if you go down to the social housing registry, for example, any day, the families in there, the majority of them are racialized. If you go into our motels where we have families who have been there for, you know, six months, a year, 18 months, Many of them are racialized. If you look at who's fleeing abuse, it's women being sent back with their children. So, th you know, this is all rooted in systemic issues in our society. And we have got to start acknowledging that. And we've got to start, if we think about uh, Indigenous homelessness, grossly disproportionate uh, to their population here, uh, more than anyone. Um, I, 
you know, I've heard that the number is likely closer to 30-35% of uh, the, our homeless population is Indigenous. And that is, quite frankly, unconscionable. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't continue to... Um, we can't continue to, you know, go out, talk about reconciliation, um, do land acknowledgements without recognizing that we caused the problem and it's up to us to solve it. That was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, especially working for Element. Um, mm -hmm. When you brought that up before the motion last year, that was one of the few times I think I heard Indigenous come up at City Hall. It doesn't come up a ton. What do you think the city needs to do? And maybe we're not aware, what is the city doing to work with the Indigenous community and handle issues like this? You know, we're fortunate in this city that we have a very strong uh, Indigenous community, uh, very strong um, organizations uh, that have the capacity uh, to work with us, to, uh, to work to end homelessness. But we have to allow uh, Indigenous organizations and leaders in this city to actually lead. We have to say to them, you tell us what's needed. You tell us how we can reconcile what's happened. You tell us what type of housing is needed, what type of supports are needed. We've got to end chronic homelessness in our Indigenous population um, and we've got to allow our Indigenous leaders to lead and to, um, and to tell us and we have to listen. And it's important that we that we hear that, that we listen, that we know what the special circumstances are, um, so that we can, uh, in fact, end uh, Indigenous uh, homelessness in this city. One of the things you touched on as well is that homelessness really does come down to an issue of poverty and how how we treat people of certain income levels in the city. Ottawa is becoming pricier and pricier by the mm -hmm. day. Rent levels are going up. What do you think needs to happen, especially at a city level, to protect people? We've got to uh, build more stock um, that helps with uh, that helps with the vacancy rate. Certainly, the more stock you have, the you know the the less pressure there is on on rents. Um, we need to uh, look at inclusionary zoning, but we also have to take even a bolder stand. You know, if you look at what Montreal has just done, all new development has got to be twenty percent market rent, affordable market rent, 20% community social housing, if you will, that's deep, has deep affordability, and 20% has to be built for families. And that's how you get out of um, uh, a place where rents are just so high and have skyrocketed that we're just pushing people out of the places they need to be, which is close to transit, close to amenities, uh, where it's walkable, cyclable, um, and affordable. So, you know, we have to do that as a city. We have to, we know that we've got 20,000 families in the city who um, have uh, severe core housing needs. So they're spending 50, 60, 70% of their income on rent. For those folks, we have to, for those families and individuals, we have to give them rent supplements. Again, it's not because they can't keep their housing. It's not because they don't know how. It's because they don't have the money to. Um, and we need our federal partners uh, to do. And, the, and they have not come to the table. They have not, uh, to date, put up any uh, more money. The National Housing Strategy actually has less money in it than it did when they announced it. And as far as I can tell, there's, um, you know, there are no plans to, to add to that. So we have to bring to bear on our uh, federal government uh, the needs in this country and, and in our cities. 
And for somebody who does come across someone experiencing homelessness and with homelessness and would like to help them, what can they do? Um, I always tell people to uh, look up our great housing providers, uh, the Salises, the Options, the uh, and, uh, and and a lot of smaller ones as well that, that are out there that uh, are, are doing what they can to help people go volunteer, make a donation. Um, people who are living in supportive housing often are also poor. Um, they have housing, but they're, you know, they still struggle. And, and these are the organizations that are working every day, CCOC, uh, to, to make sure that uh, we're taking care of people. So I tell people, go on out and make a donation. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, and that is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And uh, don't forget, you can download the Radio Player Canada app and listen anywhere across the country on your device of choice. If you do that, just type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. I'd like to welcome uh, my next guest who is on the line probably from Stratford, Ontario, but I'm guessing at this point. But uh, we are speaking with the artistic director of the Stratford Festival, Anthony Cimellino, and it's a pleasure to have him online. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to, to be online with you, and I am in Stratford, and boy, is it snowy. <laughs> yes, uh, well, we're finally getting a bit of what winter should be like, I guess. We don't have much snow to complain about these years. No, it's true. It's true. But listen, speaking of Stratford, what a wonderful, wonderful place. Just as a town, it's a beautiful place. You know, if you've not been there, I recommend you take a drive down there, uh, not only to see some of the wonderful plays that are, that are in Stratford, uh, that take place at the Stratford Festival, but it's just a beautifully laid out, uh, relaxed kind of environment uh, in the middle of sort of, I guess, of southwestern Ontario, would you, would you say, Anthony? Yeah, it's, it, it's a gorgeous place. It's a... It's a um um, a very peaceful place, and over the years, uh, this community has actually uh, expanded the park system. So when factories closed along the water where they were using the mill, they donated the land back to the city. So it's actually a place you can walk around with water and, uh, and be at peace. Yeah, that's right, the mill and the water and, of course, the swans. That's what comes to mind, the swans. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, and- so... Uh, so it, it's wonderful, and it's a great place to take in a theater because, you know, often when we go to theater in very urban environments, it's hard to, the, to make anything in the theater as uh, loud or as filled with energy as you've got on the streets, whereas mm. here you can see a play and then you can leave it and actually discuss it and think about it. It, it provides uh, uh, an ability to contemplate. You're right. I was just going to say that. It's a wonderful place because you can leave the theater and walk around to one of the parks and discuss that without uh, the boom and the distraction of the, of the urban area. Now, having said that, Anthony, what I'd like to uh, would like quickly discuss a little bit of, because this is a, a big year for you, 2020, um, and why I say that is because you're opening up a brand new theater, uh, and it looks wonderful, uh, and I know you probably want to touch on that a little bit, but... Before we get there, it's kind of really interesting because you're you're tying this in with the the guy who founded it. Yeah, Tom Patterson uh, was a um, a local kid here in in Stratford, and he he when it, it, the entire economy of Stratford was collapsing in the early fifties, and so um, he had the idea of 
crazy idea, by the way, of revitalizing the economy by putting on plays, the plays of Shakespeare. And But it happened, and it worked. And it's one of those examples of, you know, um, uh, an economy being driven by uh, people and people gathering around beautiful and important things, our storytelling. And therefore... Um, you know, it, it uh, he is a hero, an unlikely hero, but a hero because uh, who would have thought this this idea could take uh, flight? And and it's made the town. You know, it's attracted people from artists from all over the world. And uh, and you know, it, sometimes uh, making the world better has to do with uh, doing the right thing and and telling stories and and uh, you know, coming together as a community. You know, again, just touching on that uh, on that that idea that uh, Tom had, uh, it's interesting that that as you say, he had no theater experience. He just had this this idea and wanted to bring it, and he went and and approached uh, uh, Tyrone Guthrie uh, in 1952, and you know, British actor, and said, "Hey, what do you think of this?" And, and he came over. He got lucky for sure because Guthrie had an idea. He wanted to recreate the stage that Shakespeare used, a, a, a kind of a, a thrust stage, an open stage, because Shakespeare would create the the scenes uh, through the words. He would create, you know, the ambience, whether it was night or day, whether you were in a forest or in a palace. It would all be created by the words. And when the theaters were closed in 1640s in England, um, the players went to France, and everybody was into the idea of creating spectacle, creating tricks for the eye in theaters that are like the more traditional ones we know, like a picture box. Um, And Guthrie felt strongly that uh, the plays of Shakespeare uh, could only really be done in a in a simpler and open kind of uh, relationship, one where the actor and the story and the text are right in the middle of the audience. So that's what he got to create here in Stratford, and it revolutionized the performance of Shakespeare, because suddenly the actor didn't have to compete with all these visuals. the The words and the stories were in the middle of a circle, and being in the middle of a circle, like a Greek amphitheater. The storytelling and the, the 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 people on the stage became important. So, stripping away the excess and just getting to the basics um, is what made the festival different, and it caught on around the world. And I guess as long as the actor doesn't have a child or or an animal on stage, they're happy, so they won't be upstage, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Nothing survives a dog or a cat. Um, uh, But we also have other stages. We've got our studio theater, which was um, uh, based upon our festival stage. And then the stage you referred to just now, David, the new Tom Patterson Theater, which is like a long, elongated thrust. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful, exciting space Um, in our studio theater, which is it's it's relatively small. It's 260 seats. It's very intimate. But it's uh, I just did a play there this past year. It is magical, and we are going to be presenting a production of Thompson Highway's The Rest Sisters there, mm-hmm. this summer, which we are all tremendously excited about. Yes, of course, um, it, for sure. That that's a, a fun play, of course, and uh, that would be great to to see put on there. Uh, now, uh, of course, uh, Anthony, you you are no stranger to shake to uh, Shakespeare or or uh, the uh, Stratford Festival. You've been there for quite some time, um, not only as its artistic director, but you you uh, you were also an, an actor. 
Yeah, I started at the festival. I, I had done some directing before I got to the festival, but I, I got there in 1988. Here in 1988, I was an actor, and uh, within a couple of years, David, they they asked me to become an assistant director, which I you know, took as a comment on the quality of my acting. Mm. Um, but uh, it was the best thing that could happen to me because I, uh, I I got to, you know, work on the play as a whole, every element mm. of it. And so I've been a director ever since and, uh, and uh, now uh, since 2013, the artistic director. Yeah, so you said it was the best thing that ever happened to you. Um, and why? I know you said you get to work on every aspect, but what, what fulfills you about it? Well, um, when I prepare a play, I, 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 I you know, study the times. I think about what playwright was trying to say to the world today. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is about all of these, um, the, these writers, they were revolutionaries in their time. They were trying desperately to say something that would make the world better. And they're trying to pass something on to us today. Mm-hmm. And so in looking at them, we got to really kind of try to understand... The, the fiber of what they're getting at, how they were trying to change the world and make it better and, and bring that to life, you mm. know? Um, and so, uh, you know, it's like Shakespeare, David. He, he's constantly speaking up for the underdog. He's mm. always there. No king in Shakespeare is a good king. He's always a revolutionary Shakespeare. And what's miraculous is he's the only playwright in his time that managed to stay out of jail. <laughs> Almost all of them wound up in jail, and he was by by saying things in a way that you know either setting something in another country or as a fantasy, he managed to make political and social commentary that was really kind of uh, amazingly out there and f- progressive, but did it in a way that um, it wasn't overt. It, it managed. It was uh, you know it it. it it managed to uh, undermine without um, making the foundations cave in. So he he had a... It's such a pleasure to work on these plays because they're an education, each and every one of them, you know? Uh, Yeah, I I can well imagine uh, going through the text, as you say, to try to bring it forward and make it relevant to today's audience and and, and discovering things that uh, maybe like Eureka moments and go, yeah, this really translates well in, and, you know, the audience can, could really get something out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, of course, I guess is why, why Shakespeare has stood the test of time. Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's often misunderstood and people want to impose things on him. But having, you know, spent 40 years working on his plays, I, I feel that... Uh, he he's a, a spirit that believes very much in the possibility of a better world through kindness and understanding. Mm. And uh, it's getting to the heart of that that really makes one of his plays really work. Mm. Now, um, I know you have to uh, leave shortly. Um, I would like to come back just to uh, what can we what can we tell people about the upcoming season? Well, there's a lot of different things on. There are that we're opening a new theater, and Richard III, which was the play that we began the festival with in 1953, will have Column Fior acting the part of the uh, of Richard III, and alongside of it, All's Well That Ends Well uh, will be there. And uh, so, those are the two productions we began with, and they will be opening up this new theater, which is just gorgeous. It's along the water. It, it, uh, it it's been beautifully 
designed by a Canadian architect, Sia Makariri, who has uh, created um, such wonderful views of, of the community. Um, there's a lot of different plays going on. I mentioned the Res Sisters, and, and you know, it has an extraordinary cast of actresses, mm-hmm. just like just, you know, in, from Jenny Lozon, mm-hmm. you know, to Brefany Car- uh, Caribou, a newcomer like that, mm-hmm. Michaela Washburn, just uh, under the director of ju- uh, direction of Jessica Carmichael. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Thompson's play is uh, absolutely one that should be seen alongside Shakespeare because I feel that he's writing about life and death, spirituality, pain, uh, and joy. And uh, it's got big canvas, but um, it's a beautiful, beautiful examination of life. And this uh, incredible team uh, is going to bring it to, you know, a vibrant life. That's great. Sounds wonderful. Now, the other thing that you're, you'll be doing, and I think you're expanding on this, you've got all these forums that are taking place as well. We do. That's right. So there are almost... 300 of them that are going to happen during the season. They happen late at night. They happen early in the morning. So when you come to Stratford, you know, you, you've got to kind of unplug from what you're doing day to day in your in, in your home community because most people travel here. But it's a great chance to be able to immerse yourself in theater, to see a play at 2 o'clock. But before that, go hear a talk or a concert. Um, the forum gives you a chance to understand what the plays mean in our world today. They're performances, discussions, and they really make the experience much more rich. It really helps make it a a festival. And so have a look at uh, the Stratford Festival website. Look at the forum events. When you're coming and planning a visit, um, you know, just check out what's happening around the date and time of your performances, because I think you'll find there's a lot of exciting things going on that will make your experience richer. Mm, sounds wonderful. And of course, uh, some uh, some of the things that have also been done with uh, the performances there is uh, some of them have been turned into films and are, are being uh, uh, shown and will be shown in the Cineplex uh, theaters. David, that's right. We we uh, every year we we film a number of productions, really focusing on Shakespeare, trying to make sure that we have a, a Canadian um, collection of these plays. And so this year we uh, have a production of Othello, which will be coming out in Cineplex, Cineplex screens across Canada this spring, as well as a production of The Merry Wives of Windsor. And we also uh, filmed Henry VIII, which will be coming out in, in the time ahead. So um, you can go to the CBC website as well and see uh, uh Productions from previous years, or you can write to us and and uh, buy, you know, a production, a DVD of of the productions in the past. These are a great help for teachers, students, um, and uh, and also they're just enjoyable to watch. Mm. Now we only have a couple of minutes left. I know you have to run. I just wanted to uh, come back to the uh, Tom Patterson Theater for a moment because I know it's uh, it, there's an ongoing uh, dollar for dollar campaign to. I know you're very close to re- reaching your uh, hundred million dollar uh, uh, cap that you're looking for, but uh, there is that people can go on and donate if they care to do so. Correct. That's right, and and it will not only help us build the building, but it'll also go into an endowment fund, which will support artists and our activities in the years ahead. Um, and the beauty of it is that if you give an amount of money, you will get a tax receipt 
from the government, and it makes sure that our governments are putting money towards things that really matter in life, mm. like art. So <laughs> please, um, you know, I implore all your listeners to give us a hand and, uh, and to uh, bring our uh, government representatives with you. Um, there's one last thing I should say, David. Yes. Um, you know, and it gets back to the festival as a, um, a place where you can stop and think. And it's a fantastic place to bring young people. Like, um, if you've got a niece or a grandchild and you want to come out and just have quality time with them where you can actually see something, it sends an important message to the young person about what you value. It gives you an opportunity to uh, share time with them in a way that will be unforgettable. So um, I, I, I ask all your listeners to think about coming and thinking about bringing along the next generation. Speaking of that, you, you, uh, Stratford also offers the training programs for youthful and uh, up-and-comers, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. We have a, kind of a Shakespeare school that happens in the summer, which you'd also be able to find on the website. And and there's a whole bunch of this. There's day camps. There's summer overnight camps. There, there's a, uh, Some are just, you know, usually teenagers. But it's a chance for somebody who's interested in the arts to um, to to you know, learn more and see plays and get to meet artists and uh, and other young people of their age that are interested in, in you know, everything from working on uh, Shakespeare to song and dance. So it's, um, it's it, and it's something, it's a gift to a young person that, you know, will stay with them forever. Mm. Anthony, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I wish we had a little more time, but I know you have to run. But I thank you for the time uh, that you took to speak with us about uh, Stratford Festival and uh, this uh, this season of 2020. David, it's a real pleasure to speak to you, and, and thanks for helping us get this message out. You bet. Look forward to speaking okay. with you again. Okay. Bye, David. Bye-bye. That is Anthony Cimolino. He is the Artistic Director of the Stratford Festival, and he was online with us from Stratford. It's been a pleasure to speak with him. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening, and uh, we look forward to seeing you and and you listening to us next time right here on Moment of Truth on Element FM. See you then. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech, and thanks for listening.